0: Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. I want to welcome everyone to our seminar today. Um, We're so pleased to have you. For those of you who are new, the Women in Public Policy Program is a research center of the Kennedy School that closes gender gaps in economic opportunity, political participation, Health and education, and I just want to remind everyone today that this seminar is being recorded for podcasts. And turn it over to <coughs> the Women in Public Policy Program's former academic, uh, former Do faculty I chair, Jane Ericson.
1: Hi, hi, everyone. No. We've got a real treat today. We've got a former president of the American Economics Association and the current chair of the Sociology Department here at Harvard. Two very distinguished scholars to talk with us. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Mary Britton (laughs) and Claudia Golden. They are going to do a joint presentation on gender inequality, a comparative view of the challenges ahead. So Mary Britton is the Reischauer Professor of Sociology and the department chair, as I mentioned, and a faculty affiliate of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs here at Harvard. And her research focuses on gender inequality, education, labor markets, economic sociology, and particularly Japanese society, and comparative sociology. And using, like me, a mix of qualitative and quantitative methods, uh, she studies institutional change and its effects on individual action, which I do think is um, key to the universe, <laughs> the combination <laughs> of the effects of we, we human beings build institutions in order to be able to do our work better. And the question is, are these institutions kind of help produce better outcomes or worse ones. Um, and Mary works particularly in the field of labor markets and education. Also among Harvard's <coughs> faculty, Claudia Golden is the Henry Lee Professor of Economics and also directs the NBER's Development of American Economy program. She has a huge range of interests. She's an, ex- an economic historian and labor economist primarily and her research spans topics such as slavery, the economic impact of war, income inequality, education and inequality, technological change, and the gender pay gap. She's currently completing a comprehensive project on family and career transitions of male and female college graduates from the late 1960s to the present. That's my generation and your generation. (laughs) Um, she's studying us and she has some of this work she's actually presented here in a web seminar um, at the past and we're all actually this is, is incredibly exciting research so these two distinguished scholars are among the leaders of a new interdisciplinary cross Harvard research cluster that will explore gender equity within households and firms as well as the broader economic and public benefits than it can accrue from having both men's and women's voices represented in corporate and public policy decisions. We Mm -hmm. all look forward to hearing more about your research and this important project. Thank you. Thank you you.
0: Thanks to Jenny for a wonderful introduction. Fadi and I are going to do a kind of tag team presentation. And we had a a rather unusual assignment, which is to introduce, as Jenny said, our new initiative on gender inequality, which is funded by the Weatherhead Center for uh, Industrial (laughs) (laughs) International Affairs. Um, And then also to just give you a little bit of a snapshot of our own Research program. So, this is going to be an atypical WAP seminar because it's not one long presentation on one research project. So, Jenny already provided a very nice introduction to our initiative. This is a three year initiative that we put together with the other scholars listed here, including Iris, who couldn't be here today. And um, we Claudia has reminded me that we are Ouija. I've been saying Wiggy, so we're still we're still having a bit of a, of a debate about that. Um, but I think I, I will um, let Claudia have the final word on this. Um, uh, so we have a three-year program, and I want to just take a few moments to describe how our brand is different from WAP, because we certainly didn't see a need to you know create another WAP because WAP is fantastically successful, and um, we spend a lot of time figuring out how we will want to intersect with WAP and also, of course, intersect with other groups on campus. But we have um, three years of programming that we're starting to plan put into place. This is our first year, and we're really focused this year on community building within Harvard. So across graduate students, undergrads, because our funding is entirely from the Weatherhead Center, which is not exclusively a faculty of arts and science institution, but mainly. It's mainly um, serving the faculty of arts and sciences. So professors, graduate students, and undergraduates. So this is a bit of a distinction, I think, from WAP that we're really incorporating undergraduates Um, especially in the social sciences, in the faculty of arts and sciences, into our programming. And this is our schematic that um, was in our proposal last fall to Weatherhead. Um, So this first year, we're focusing mainly on the intersection between labor markets and employment on the one hand and households and families on the other. Next year, we'll shift a bit more towards uh, households and families and public policy. Iris will, Iris is still on leave this semester even though she's always here in, in spirit and okay. sometimes um, physically as well. But Iris will um, be a little bit more in, in charge next year. This year it's mainly Claudia and myself. Um, Kathleen McGinn, another of our members who's in the business school, will, is on sabbatical all year so she'll be playing a larger role next year. And then the third year, uh, will um, shift to public policy and labor markets and employment, um, that intersection. In point of fact, in all years, we'll be dealing with all three circles, but um, this is our general uh, schematic. So again, I want to say a few words about uh, how we distinguished ourselves in our proposal and what we're going to be doing from what? We're very much focused on the post-industrial world, and we're really looking at um, a series of questions that are um, motivating our research proposals, our research <coughs> agendas, our activities. Um, and the first one is simply, why are some post-industrial societies seemingly moving more rapidly towards gender equality in all its guises than other societies why are changes in men's and women's roles producing greater disruption in family outcomes family formation marriage and childbearing and family stability in terms of divorce in some societies than others and I'll circle back to this second theme when I give an example of my own research program obviously we're very interested in public policy and what public policies can do to facilitate a dual carer, dual earner <coughs> model, um, rather than support, continuing to support a very strong male breadwinner model. How do changes in the welfare state affect the well-being of men and women, and here we also include health. So Jason Beckfield is one of our members, um, is working on health um, disparities between men and women and across social classes, primarily in the EU. How will households in the state share the increasing care burden generated by aging populations? And again, as I get um, in a few minutes to my own research agenda, I'm looking at societies in my research that are very rapidly aging because of very, very low fertility rates, and um, care burden is very rapidly increasing in Places like Japan, which I study. Um, obviously, we're very interested in employers and how they can level the playing field or not for equally educated men and women. And then um, again, as this last question is very pertinent to what I do, um, what are the economic and productivity implications for countries that are only partially lo- utilizing high human capital women? So, again, when we're looking at East Asia, my my part of the world, this is a big issue because you have a very highly educated female population and they're not utilized to their um, capacity throughout their um, productive lifespan in labor market roles. So this is a sampling of questions that motivate, motivate us. Rather than starting off with a workshop, because we kind of feel like, some of us feel like there are enough workshops at Harvard (laughs) every week or every other week, this year we're really starting out with events. And our first event actually is this afternoon, which um, will be a mini symposium of undergraduates uh, working on gender inequality issues in their senior theses. So we'll. shift over to um, CJIS, the Center for Government and International Studies, um, and have five presenters, two 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 from Social Social Studies, three of Claudia's students from Econ, um, and they'll each have their 15 minutes of fame um, to tell us what they're writing their honors theses on. Um, So that's our first undergraduate event. And in the spring, at some point, we'll probably have an event for juniors, um, undergraduates, who are thinking about writing senior theses in the area of gender inequality next year. We're also planning two uh, graduate student focused um, events in the spring. And then, in particular, I want to tell this group about um, a March 10th event, which will be at Weatherhead. And I'm going to give you all um, an email address to which you can send your names if you want to get onto our mailing list because we're really just just formulating our mailing list. Um, so the let me get back up a second. So the um, the March 10th event um, is actually very fortuitously timed because Iris's book is coming out that week, and it's also um, International Women's Right International Women's Week. week. Um, so it'll be a very nice event. We'll be bringing in some outside um, prominent speakers in the area of gender inequality, and we'll do a little more um, about our own research, you know, and more than we can fit in for today. So um, that's going to be fun. So whether we're we mm-hmm. or we're Ouija, <laughs> um, we are not equal to wealth. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we want to be very complimentary to WAP. I think again, I think some of the distinctions are we're really aiming to serve and to integrate a lot of the undergrads in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences into, you know, collaborations and conversations with graduate students and professors, and um, and we're really primarily not looking at the developing world, so to speak, although. Some projects will be comparative with the developing world. My undergrad student is comparing Japan and Turkey, for instance. Um, But we're primarily focused on post-industrial societies. So here's the um, email address of our administrative assistant at uh, Weatherhead and that's the email to which you should write if you'd like to be on the mailing list. We can do this through other ways, too. You could write to me or to Claudia. And we, can, we can get you on the, mail list, the mailing list. So please look forward and participate in three years of events. We hope we'll go even longer. Um, almost all the funding that we received from Weatherhead, we're using for seed grants to undergrads, graduate students, and assistant professors to spur their research efforts. And then we're using you know other money for events. But it's really a little less about, well, it's not at all about funding our own research as the principal investigators. It's much more about building community and, and getting a lot of conversations going among the existing community at Harvard without having to create new courses, new institutions, it's really a program, but um, to the extent that we're successful, you know, we fully anticipate continuing across many years. Let me just make one small addendum that I thought of this morning. I think part of what some of us had in mind, particularly Claudia, Sasha Killewald, um, who's also she's um, an associate professor that's involved in this, and myself, we came from institutions that had pop centers that really population centers that really brought together labor economists and sociologists and, and people from other disciplines around many issues including gender inequality and it's hard within the FAS you you all have the benefit of being at the Kennedy school where the disciplines are constantly, I, I envision, I don't know, but maybe this is pie in the sky, but bouncing off of each other. We don't live in that world at FAS. We live in fairly siloed departments. And so a lot of our impetus is to do what we can around the edges to break down those silos for ourselves so that we can talk more to each other and have fun with that and for our students. So um, so there is that kind of interdisciplinary emphasis. Okay. So year one, focus on households in the labor market. Obviously, there are multiple ways in which households and the labor market intersect to shape, produce, maintain gender inequality. And one of the arrows um, we know is through the continuing gender division of labor in the home, in care for children, for the elderly, and in housework, this you know, This is a very simplistic little diagram, of course, but we know that that has an impact on labor market outcomes such as um, perpetuation of the gender wage gap and so forth. And I'm going to show you a quick example that's very close to home. It's at Harvard. Then we're going to move to another part of the world, um, the parts of the world that I study. <coughs> I have the distinction or the burden, I don't know which it is, of being the chair of the standing committee on women at Harvard this year. And I was treated to a sneak preview of the faculty climate survey results um, before they were presented to the full FAS faculty. And this was the slide that Judy Singer in particular pointed to as being extremely illustrative. Junior faculty women leave Harvard in the, in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at a rate that quite exceeds senior faculty men, that is pre-tenure. And one of the questions that was asked in the faculty climate survey that the university did in 2013 was the following. During, a, during an academic year, how many hours is your typical work week? And then secondly, roughly how many hours per week do you spend engaged in household child care and or adult care duties. So the left-hand graph is professors, Claudia, me, other full professors, Um, tenured professors. And there's not much um, gender difference um, in terms of work hours. Um, You see that even full professors who have children and a working partner, or are single like me with with a child, women put in 10 hours per week on average more domestic labor than men do. <coughs> the gap is particularly alarming at the untenured um, rate, uh, untenured part of the of the uh, chart. Okay. The laser is- Oh, okay. So if you just go over to the right, you can see that um, the red line is women, the blue line, of course, is men. And junior women with children and a working partner are putting in 20 hours a week more at home than their assistant and associate professor male counterpart at Harvard. They're not working any fewer hours on their work, but they're working 20 hours a week more on their second shift. That's a problem. This is very, very local. This is us, right? Um, can the univ- what could the university do about this? I don't know. They can't you know, go into households and uh, tell people to change. But this is a very striking um, result. Junior faculty women must be really, really tired. Their work week is much, much longer than men. Senior women here are very tired, too. We can tell you lots and lots of stories, because there are many committees at Harvard that now require a senior woman. And that's the good news. The bad news is there aren't enough of us to go around to fill these committees. So anyway, these are examples close to home about the intersection. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, you assistant and associate professors, also their kids are younger, so there's, yeah. there's a higher demand higher almost
0: 2 year old. Absolutely. There's just more time you need. When the kids there's go. more time, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. How are the child care facilities at Harvard for uh, that's not a question I was prepared to go into, mm-hmm. but there is child subsidized childcare. It's childcare is extremely expensive, of course, in Cambridge and in Boston overall. Um, there are subsidized childcare centers at Harvard. Um, They're still very expensive, I would say. Listening to my junior colleagues, I moved here when my daughter was seven, so she was already in school, but. Um, It's it's very expensive. Uh, I'll take one more question, and then we want to go on. I'm sure you might not be prepared to answer mine as well as to go into that, but you mentioned something like um, you're not too sure if
3: uh, the institutions can go into people's households. (laughs) uh, (laughs) So in my mind, I'm seriously wondering Mm -hmm. because this is the kind of work that I do. Um, whose responsibility does it then become to change people's perceptions and attitudes? Because at some point it has to change.
0: Follow yeah. us for three years, <laughs> and we'll try to get. doing it for nine years. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, I work on, I work on a male breadwinner ideology society, Japan. So if I had the, if I had the silver bullet for that, <laughs> for that question, I'd probably be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very important question. It's everybody's responsibility, right? But. Um, i mean the good thing is that the administration is very aware of this the fas administration and um, i don't want to go into intra-university politics very much but our dean at fas um, is requiring this year that all the department chairs um, go into quite excruciating detail about our mentoring systems within our departments for junior faculty. Again, that's within the university. It's not dipping into anybody's households. Um, we can come back to this later if you'd like to. Um, this is just a quick graph. Um, levels of satisfaction and stress. Levels of satisfaction are actually is actually elsewhere in the slides. This is stress, and just follow the blue line and the red line, and you'll see that, that women are experiencing more stress um, related to um, all of these issues. Child care is way, way out there on the right. Um, as you see here, junior women are more distressed about child care. Um, as, as was pointed out, some of the distinction between full professors and untenured professors, obviously, is the age of children. It's just a very a pinch time when you're young and trying to get tenure and you've got young children. Um, But in general, you see that there are very high stress levels among uh, women at Harvard. And this pretty much mirrors many, many workplaces in the US. Um, So that's a close to home issue. Um, Now let's go back to this intersection between the home and the labor market for a few minutes, and then quickly I'm going to turn things over to Claudia, but there's also obviously a way, many ways, in which gendered labor market institutions affect what goes on in households as well. My work is, at this moment, more centered on this second piece, um, and on this dynamic. So, my own work um, these days involves studying um, parts of the post-industrial world, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, and East Asia, where people are delaying marriage longer and longer, or not getting married at all, Um, and partly as a result of that, these countries are um, facing extinction if they don't have any immigration. Japan, the country I study, has basically no immigration policy and uh, is rapidly aging and um, the fertility level will not, um, is not replacement level. So I'm really looking at the relationship between gender equality, here I put gender equity for various reasons, but gender equality and low fertility. And this is just a quick snapshot. I gave a seminar here, I think three years ago or so on my project. But um, if you go back to 1970, this is a, a variety of post-industrial countries that I'm showing. There was there was quite a span of um, total fertility rates or birth rates um, in the post-industrial world ranging from around two, actually Sweden was quite <coughs> low then. Sweden's story is absolutely fascinating, um, to 4.5, South Korea, which is another country I study. South Korea was still very much in the um, economic development um, stage and so fertility fell rapidly um, as, as South Korea joined post-industrial um, countries. But you see um, in 2010 that all the societies listed here and you know we could add lots more um, from Europe and East Asia and from Eastern Europe not two children um, per female, per year, so below replacement level fertility. But the ones that have the lowest fertility rates are Japan, South Korea, Singapore, um, Italy, Spain. And many of these societies have what almost everybody would characterize as low levels of gender equality. Um, The societies I study, South Korea and Japan, have still have very strong male breadwinner ideologies. And I'm just going to talk for a minute, if I have time, about some of the institutions, which um, Jenny highlighted um, my work on institutions, some of the ways that institutions (coughs) perpetuate, are informed by gender ideology, and perpetuate um, that um, ideology through um, institutional arrangements, especially in the labor market. So on the one hand, throughout the post-industrial world, Europe, East Asia, and North America, universal expansion of educational opportunities and labor market opportunities, (coughs) especially education. So as we all know, in many countries now, women have higher university completion rates than men do. And we're not going to go backwards in time on that. That has happened. It's the 21st century. Labor market opportunities vary extremely widely over all these countries that we're discussing. Universally, there's been much slower change within the domestic sphere, right? Um, And so one of the big theories in um, the low fertility demographic area is that um, this this tension is one of the things that's producing very low fertility rates. It's very, very hard for women to work full-time and to be mothers at the same time. Um, So we've got these things operating and bouncing off of each other, of course, in very um, complex ways. Um, So I'm just going to list a bunch of papers that I'm working on. Some of my co-authors are here. But I have a large project that I've been working on for several years. comparing five post-industrial societies, one from Southern Europe, Spain, two from East Asia, South Korea, and Japan, one from Northern Europe, Sweden, and this one, the U.S. And we're looking at um, how gender equality and family formation are related um, in all of these countries, and we're writing a bunch of papers. So um, this is kind of the macro-level paper. I've been writing a lot about gender role attitude change, the trajectories over time. Um, I have specific papers on South Korea. I, I'll just list these papers and then do I have one more minute, Claudia?
3: Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll just say a word um, about this paper, which is one I've been working on hard for the last two weeks. Um, this is with a Japanese labor economist, a friend of mine. and. I've got this to organizational work. But um, this paper I really, really like. Um, Nobuko wrote the first draft. What we do is we look at Japanese labor market institutions, so the employment um, regulations that are supported by the Supreme Court in Japan and um, are really carried out in large firms, which involves Basically, in a nutshell, a lot of employer discretion over when employees will be transferred, um, obviously where they'll be put within the organization, and the amount of overtime work that they'll be required to do and so forth. And we do an analysis that um, indicates that for university educated men in large firms, the Norms, we try to analyze the norms of their own um, firm size, the norms about men (coughs) contributing to housework. And we show that there's this contextual effect on the individual man. If he's in an organization, in a firm, where his colleagues, male colleagues, are contributing very little housework time, he's right in there with them. When he changes firms to a smaller firm, or, um, well, generally it's to a smaller firm, and the context changes, his behavior is a little bit more in line with that. So we're trying to capture the kind of local um, normative context that um, Japanese men are working within um, that kind of perpetuates this very low contribution to housework and child care.
1: Were you implying that in the smaller firm there's more contribution in the home?
0: Mm-hmm. On average, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The large <laughs> firms are the best jobs, the career track jobs, um, the jobs where you have to toe the line if you want to get promoted and so forth. But they are the best jobs, right? So it's a, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm just wondering if you come back to the law concerning mothers and the children and uh, the family law. What does the law say about the family, especially mother? Being a mother is very, very good. It's good. Right. It's demanding. Right. It's demanding energy, time, money, and uh, right. all kinds of things. And naturally, mothers, they, 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 they focus on their children, really. And as a doctor, or whoever they are, Once they are mothers, they really forget themselves and give more attention for the children, but they are so much present uh, working either part-time or full-time. At the same time, uh, being a mother, staying with the children or just have, you know, it's really demanding. So
0: how is the law supporting mothers? Okay, I'll try to I'll try okay. to answer that briefly. It's obviously a very bit important and big part of the picture. So, motherhood is extremely important in Japan and South Korea, the two other societies besides the U.S. that I know the best. It's extremely important, um, and the majority of, of mothers of young children in Japan continue to leave the labor force and stay out of the labor force, 60 to 70 percent. Hasn't changed for 30 years. The problem now is that the birth rate in Japan is, is so low um, that the government wants mothers to participate full-time in the labor market. Mm. Right? Japan is going to run Japan is, is an interesting and important example. Japan is going to run out of labor. And if you don't have a lot of immigrants coming in, especially highly skilled em- immigrants, you need women. Hmm. How do you balance you know the, the extreme importance of being a good mother with working full-time, with having husbands who are pressured not to give much to housework and childcare. So you can see the interplay among institutions and ideology. And the Japanese government has been promoting policies for 20 years to solve this problem. None of them are working. The Japanese birth rate has not gone up, except slight uptick now and then. But it's basically way, way below population replacement level. So, you know, in many ways, I need to sum up because it's Claudia's turn. But in many ways, um, you know, the male breadwinner ideology, male breadwinner focused labor market institutions, I'll just put it out there, they're not well suited to the 21st century reality, right? And the countries, many of the countries that are really struggling with young people not getting married or delaying marriage, um, and if they get married having no kids or one kid, I think are up against these tensions between male breadwinner ideology, women's advances in education and to some extent in the labor market, still very high valuation on parenthood and most particularly motherhood you know, how you get all these, put all these things together and have a healthy, sustainable society is hard. So that's the set of issues that I'm, that I'm putting my time into these days. Um, and I think I need to turn to Claudia and give her a well, to I, continue. We,
2: we have some time for a couple of additional questions. Okay. So, um,
1: sure why don't we just laptop, take, sorry. Uh,
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were saying that the Japanese government is now trying to get more women involved in the workforce, um, and because they're having fewer children, um, are they kind of
0: adapting?
2: Well, they a- want them to have two children too. Well, okay. So yeah. they want both. Are they trying to adapt things like um, like parental leave laws or yes. Um, yes. Yeah, having things like? Daycare's on work on site no like daycare
0: that. on site is a is a non starter. I mean it's basically a non starter in this country too. If you look at the proportion of workplaces that actually have on site daycare, it's infinitesimal. Japan has very good public daycare, public childcare. Um, you have to work both people have to be Keiko correct me if I'm wrong, but both partners have to be working full time um, to have some
3: kind of deregulated that system, but. It used to be the case that if you have full time, both of them, and if you can prove that you lack the kind of the support mm-hmm. from grand- you know, grandmothers in particular, you can you know mm-hmm. claim a space in you know, a you know, daycare, uh, public funded daycare system, which is very, very high quality, yeah. but it's very low cost. Yeah. So That was the case. But the problem is affordability that uh, uh,
0: availab-
3: availab- available 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 it's very affordable and uh, the quality is good but it's the, the availability the slots are yeah so the, the Prime the
0: Minister's less. been one of his high priorities has been to shorten or eliminate the waiting list in yeah, various areas by,
3: by relaxing the, the regulations
2: yeah the relaxability yeah pardon I said but that hasn't been working you were saying they've tried a bunch of laws but they haven't been working
0: well let me give all you have to do is look at the
2: fertility. Look rate, at the, the fertility, fertility rate. rate and you can see. And you can just see that's, been your, trying that's for how you judge years. if it's working. Yeah.
0: The Japanese no, fertility rate biased. has been below replacement Four. population replacement level for thirty years. Um, the the um, I've been writing a lot in in my organizational guise, which was the last. Um, abbreviated phrase at the end, I've been working a lot with a former graduate student. Um, We interview human resource managers in large Japanese organizations um, about their implementation and their attitudes towards um, parental leave. Um, I believe Japanese male employees take parental leave at the rate of 2%. So it's basically no men take parental leave, even though they can women a very large proportion of women who stay in the labor fo- are staying in the labor force while they're pregnant with their first child a large proportion of those women um, who in- intend to stay 60 or 70 percent of them quit outright within the first year after their children are born among the ones who stay intend to stay a very large percentage of them are taking child care leave Child care leave, the Japanese government has made it longer and longer and longer. Um, So it's all targeted really towards women. Women are the primary caregivers. When women come back into the organization after two years or after three years away from their career track job, the psychological environment may or may not be very hospitable to them because they've been away for years. And if you look at the studies of the welfare state and the various lengths of childcare leave offered by different European societies, in my reading, there's a kind of sweet spot at about six months. After that, correct me if I'm wrong, Claudia, but after that, if a woman stays out of the labor force for more than six months, it's very hard for her to get back to her wage trajectory and so forth. Three years is a long time. And it's not changing the male breadwinner assumptions. While the woman is at home, if her husband is still working full time, guess what she's doing? She's spending all her time on childcare and housework. How does that equilibrium shift when she goes back to working 60 hours a week? So long childcare leaves are not, to my mind, at all the answer. You know, Sweden has taken a different route. It took Sweden a long time to figure this out. It's still not completely figured out, but when you talk to Swedish men, as we did in my five-country study, Swedish fathers talk about their right to take childcare leave. Mm -hmm. Japanese men don't talk about this yet as their right. They're starting to, Mm -hmm. but that took a long time in Sweden. It takes a long time in any society for that kind of you
1: know, language and narrative to develop a think you, you and Claudia are among the, the, the few people I know studying the effect of the second child. And I, I noticed that's in the title, yeah. second birth here. Could you say something about the effect of deciding to have a second child um, on, on a woman's trajectory within the labor force? Because, well, Claudia, then maybe, maybe Well, there, there
2: are very few in Japan who are having second children, so it's yeah. easy. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely looking at, at that. Um, well, the the bottom line. Let me give you two sort of bottom line results from this paper, which which I just finished. Um, I, I talked about kind of the first stage, right, where the husband's organizational work norms, to the extent that we can measure them are having an impact on the amount of time he devotes to domestic work, household labor, and child care. We then have a second stage, a second analysis, where we look at men's housework time, um, along with many other variables, of course, um, and probability of transitioning to a second child. And there's a positive effect. So this has been found in many countries. Um, but what what Nobuko and I feel our innovation is, is we're taking a step back and saying, let's look at this man in the context of his work situation. Because often in these studies, men are kind of left out of the picture, you know, measurement of household division of labor, men are doing very much, darn those men, da-da-da-da. Yeah. But it's not that I'm excusing Japanese men, but the norms that they're subject to in order to be considered, you know, really great adult men and good breadwinners, make it very, very difficult for them to do this balancing act. And of course, that reverberates into women's lives and couples end up having one kid. Most people who get married in Japan do have at least one child. There there are very few childless marriages, but more and more people are just saying, I'm not buying into this game at all, I'm just not going to get married. It's very amazing. In the late 30s, I think something like 30 or 40% of women are unmarried in Japan. Far higher than, um, and we're not, this includes like not cohabiting either. Mm
2: -hmm. So not
0: in stable partnerships. So but, there's but a flight one, from marriage. Yeah, one one
2: answer um, is, that for example, in in our study of MBAs, the problem wasn't so much the second kid. Yeah. The problem was that infants and two-year-olds are being taken care of until maybe five or six at night, and mm-hmm. July is not considered summer vacation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The problem is, kids are going to our public schools who are somehow dismissed at 2 p.m. and sometime in June. And so, so in some sense, a policy that we created, which is public schools, we somehow (laughs) created it in an agricultural world
0: Mm
2: -hmm. of long ago. And that, it seems to me, is... It's not cheap, but it's something that we've always had on the table. So, okay.
0: And I keep, every time Japanese government officials or economists come to Harvard, I raise my hand because they say, well, we need more childcare spaces, and mm-hmm. I, I say, how later are the childcare center is going to stay open at night? Yeah. Nine? Mm-hmm. Ten? So that women can work like men. And I say, you know, I don't think I'd have a kid under those circumstances. Having a kid should have something to do with the joy of being with the kid, right? And if you're just going to have kids taken care of by somebody else for 10 hours a day, for me, it doesn't compute. So the work norms um, and yeah, these institutions, as Claudia said, that are set up, presuming a a, a mother being at home, Got a lot to work
2: on. Okay, so I'm going to uh, move to a um, little, somewhat slightly different in terms of our uh, Ouija group. This is the Ouija group. And by
0: the way, Claudia designed our logo. Yeah, <laughs> right. she she has a hidden life, a secret life as a designer. as a graphic designer.
2: <laughs> like Ouija. What?
3: Ouija.
2: Ouija. Yeah. Uh, And um, so I'm going to discuss another part of the big puzzle and the puzzle is uh, that there are narrowing and yet there are persistent gender differences which is in some sense why in my own research I always return to gender as uh, a large topic that no matter how much as a historian I see enormous change and yet no matter how much change there is there are still these sometimes good differences and sometimes difficult different uh, differences. Uh, and so what I'm going to uh, discuss today is uh, uh, what uh, what I've been working on, uh, and that is um, not a small question, but what accounts for differences between men and women in pay and earnings, and <laughs> occupations, and thus promotions and tenure on the job and things like that. Okay, and Uh, We think we know a bit about what causes this. And in this room, we have heard many discussions in which uh, there are various possibilities. So there could be out-and-out discrimination, either due to preferences or statistical discrimination. Uh, We've heard uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, interesting work on implicit biases by employers and coworkers or clients possible. Another one that we hear a lot about is that women are simply less good, less efficient, less effective in a number of things. They're less good at bargaining, they're less good at competing and negotiating and even when they become just as good they're viewed in a different way. Uh, They're less good at math I'm not saying they are. I'm saying that this is what we've been told, that these are various possibilities. And another is that men don't do enough at home. They don't care enough uh, in terms of time for their children. So these are possibilities. (laughs) And they have led led us to to talk about things like, oh, if women aren't as good, we could fix the women, okay? Or if men aren't as good, we can fix the men, which always sounds to me as a dog person very odd. <laughs> 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 uh, and uh, and if the managers aren't uh, are biased, we, we can do something about fixing the managers. And, and another one is that uh, women uh, have children and they're infants, so if we could just sort of fix the infant problem, have better maternity leave and child care for the infants, that would do it, you know. People somehow forget that children aren't one-year capital goods. (laughs) Um, But in fact, these fix the XYZ uh, are probably part of the problem, but they're not a major part of the problem in some unfortunate way, because the fix that, uh, many of these can be done Um, they are what I call the low-hanging fruit, and so when there is low-hanging fruit, go right ahead, pick it, okay? Mm -hmm. But even if we got rid of all of these factors, a hefty gap in pay and position would still exist, and the question then is, why? And one hint of this is that pay gaps differ a lot within occupations, within broad occupations even for full-time, full-year employees, even adding various controls for hours and weeks, age, education, any of the usual controls that we add. In fact, uh, we're used to hearing that it's really occupations that differ between men and women. It's not within, it's between. In fact. The lion's share, 75% and more is actually within rather than between. So I'll walk you through this interesting diagram. The vertical axis is the gender earnings ratio. Every one of these dots is an occupation. So in the census, we have 469 occupations, some very broad, some very narrow okay, some too broad. Um, and what I have done here is I'm looking at occupations, this is 80 of them, there are about 105. They're mainly higher income occupations in which the income of the average man working in them whose full-time full year makes about 60000 a year. So this is about a quarter of the occupations, but they're the high-end occupations. And they're the ones that I can get a very good handle on in terms of um, what it is that people do in these occupations, and I'm going to match it to some other information. So remember, vertical axis is gender earnings ratio. Horizontal axis doesn't matter at all. It's just counting the occupations. And I divided the occupations into two groups. One group, the red ones, are the business and finance ones, and those are the squares. The purple squares are health, but they're high self-employment, like podiatrists, dentists, chiropractors, okay? And on the other hand, there are the triangles, the blue triangles, which are the health occupations that have low self-employment, such as my favorite, which is pharmacists, uh, and then uh, there are the others, which are science and technology and keep in mind, these are occupations, not industries mm-hmm. occupations. Most of the technology workers work in industries that are not the high tech industries. they work in manufacturing they well, they work in universities, maybe we 're a high tech industry okay. <laughs> But the important thing to see here is that one large group, business and finance and the health, high self-employment, have much lower uh, ratios here. That is, much wider gender gaps in annual earnings for full-time, full-year workers, holding lots of other stuff constant, using the American Community Survey, very, very large data set you need for this, many, many millions of observations. For around 2010 and the overlap isn't that great and the overlap for example for the business ones are, are occupations that we know women go into a lot which is human resource managers budget analysts okay so I just gave you a little taste for the occupations at each ends at the very low end there there are the financial specialist the podiatrist yeah <laughs> very high ownership So the person who owns putting in all the time is the residual claimant, that's the person who's going to get the call at 2 in the morning that the roof is leaking. Not that someone's toe hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Physicians and surgeons, only because that's too large a group. If you separate it, you'd find some would be way over there and some would be down there, and I'll talk to that in a moment. Okay. So in corporate and finance, women earn on average, if I weighted this by the number of people in the occupation, 79% what men do, but in technology and science, women earn about 90%. And the main reason is that pay in certain occupations is non-linear with respect to hours, work, and it's more so in corporate and finance than in technology and science. That is, that if an individual who worked 60 hours a week earned just twice what an individual who worked 30 hours a week, that would be linear. <coughs> but in fact, in certain occupations, it's highly nonlinear. Sometimes it's not number of hours, it's when these hours are, so that's absence of TEMPORAL FLEXIBILITY, I WANT TO WORK AT 11 AT NIGHT, BUT THERE'S A MEETING AMONG 17 CONSULTANTS AT 11 IN THE AFTERNOON, IN THE MORNING, OKAY. SO WHAT ACCOUNTS FOR THESE GENDER pay DIFFERENCES, AND THIS IS WHAT I'M CALLING THE DIFFERENTIAL COST OF TEMPORAL FLEXIBILITY. NOW, IT WOULD BE VERY DIFFICULT FOR ME TO GO AROUND FROM OCCUPATION TO OCCUPATION AND FIGURE OUT HOW THESE OCCUPATIONS DIFFER. But the good news is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics does it and they produce something called Onet. Mm-hmm. And Onet has for every occupation it has hundreds and hundreds of different characteristics some of which we don't care about such as but we might in other circumstances such as air quality okay or do you have to lift very heavy objects, but the ones that I care about include such things such as, is this a job where there's a lot of time pressure? Is there a lot of contact with others? Is there a lot of face time required? Something I don't understand. Is there... Move to Japan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is it very important to have uh, interpersonal relationships all the time? Uh, Is the job structured for a worker? If a job is structured for a worker, you're not going to get good substitution. The point here that I want to emphasize is if you have a puzzle piece, Mary and I are really good puzzle pieces, and when we're working on something, Mary will begin it, and then she'll send it to me, and she'll say, I've had it, you take it (laughs) over, here's all the information. Then I'll work on it and then I'll hand it back to her. And there's no loss in fidelity. We know what we're doing, okay, and we just hand it over. We have good information systems. We have good standardization. If this job was structured for just one of us, we wouldn't, there would be no fidelity. If you have a puzzle piece, boom, you know, you have flexibility, it's done. Frequency of decision-making. So you can see that there are times when time binds, but there's also contact with others, interpersonal relationships. There is the value of incidental conversation. I'm not saying that things aren't lost if you move to a different mode of of arranging work, but there's a real cost here, mm-hmm. and the cost is more for women. So I took all of this information from ONET, and I normed everything so there's zero mean standard deviation one on the horizontal axis is the measure of these various these five characteristics I take the mean for each so each of these points is now the occupation so the red ones are the business and health also the health high um, ownership and the triangles are the tech and science and health low. And you can see that there's a pretty strong relationship. Some of it is coming as the difference between these two groups and some even within the two groups. Okay, So this notion that temporal flexibility matters, it really matters quite a lot. Right? So I've told you a bit about what temporal flexibility is. It is an amenity that is valued disproportionately by women. Women tend to go to jobs with more of it, uh, and they tend to go to jobs with lower costs of temporal flexibility. So lots of firms advertise, and um, we give them credit for having family-friendly policies. But we forget something. It's one thing to have family-friendly policies. It's another thing to remunerate people well who take those policies, okay? So some of it isn't just that you get sort of left behind if you take a lot of time out. The world is dynamic, we might expect that, but if you have a policy that says you can work from home or you can work uh, a certain number of days, then you shouldn't be blindsided in turn, that is not that friendly. It's sort of a slap in the face friendly, okay? So what reduces the cost of temporal flexibility? Well, rewarding for outputs, not inputs, billable hours is a killer, okay? I have never understood it. I don't understand why there are law firms. So they should all go they should all go out of business. There should be a law firm that pays for outputs, mm-hmm. not inputs. Mm-hmm. You know there is no firm I know of that really makes a good product that pays for inputs. I mean, you buy a car and they say, oh, we spent a lot of time making that. You know, it just doesn't run, but we really put in the hours. Here are our hours. That doesn't work. We know what happens
0: to student papers that have that. That's right. I always
2: have a statement that says, that the labor theory of value doesn't work, you know. <laughs> the second one is use information technologies of all sorts to make employees more substitutable for each other, create puzzle pieces so each employee has a near double like we and Mary, okay? So the recipe for real change, fix the women, fix the men, fix the infants, <laughs> fix the managers is okay but it's not going to do it. It addresses the low-hanging fruit. Fix the occupations in the firms is the only real solution. Now you'll Mm -hmm. say, I know you're thinking, she's crazy because it just doesn't happen anywhere, but it really has happened in lots of places. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases it happens because of organic change. So pharmacy is my favorite example, okay? uh one of the reasons it is is because everyone in this room has been to a pharmacist mm-hmm. <laughs> and let me tell you that in terms of annual income male pharmacists earn the eight are the eighth highest earning profession okay and for women it's the fourth mm-hmm. so these are income, so when you go to the pharmacist next, wow. you show respect. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the, se- the, the other thing is that pharmacy has changed a lot in 1970. The vast majority, about 70 percent of pharmacists worked in an independent practice. Some of them were owners. Today, it's about 14 percent of men, uh, total it's about, uh, I don't know, 8 percent or so. In addition, the good is highly standardized, and the other thing is that when you go to a pharmacist, all the information about you is sitting in that computer, and it's not just that CVS or that Walgreens, it's everything, okay? So just remember that they know more about you (laughs) than anyone, okay? So there's a lot of fidelity of passing on information. I doubt that anyone in this room, when you go to a pharmacist, remember they're very high income, probably higher than anyone here, uh, when you go to the pharmacist, you, heart, you never say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, but you're not the one I gave the prescription to. <laughs> you, never, you never do that, okay? So. For so
0: interchangeability.
2: Interchangeability, very, very important, okay? Pediatricians, very interesting case in which change didn't occur, organically changed occurred because there was a critical mass of individuals who, by the way, care about children, okay? And they don't, don't just care about your kids, they care about their own kids. So today about 35% of all female pediatricians work under 35 hours a week. Okay? And many of you who have kids know that when you go to see the pediatrician, there's a group, and you take the pediatrician who is there. They're puzzle pieces. Okay? There are lots of other puzzle pieces, anesthesiologists are for sure, obstetricians are as well, okay? But that is happening among personal bankers, discount stockbrokers, and other places where teams of independence work. So thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have the dog there. <laughs> okay. Great. That's it. That's okay. it.
1: Uh-huh. Thank you very, very much. We've got some, a few minutes for questions.
0: We'll uh, 10 minutes. I don't know, maybe this is arguable, but it strikes me that those occupations are not necessarily the highest status or highest prestige occupations. Either. Anesthesiologists, well, that's obstetricians. I mean, that's the one that seems a little iffy to me. Pharmacists. I
2: mean, well, I think. Pediatricians. Me, is, when I think about personal medicine, bankers. Like, surgeons tend to be the highest status, I think, in that field. Yeah. Um, so it's, I just wonder whether. Okay, the, the I, obstetricians are achieve. surgeons, by the way. <laughs> it's a surgical specialty. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. I, obstetricians are surgeons. Oh, so you're, you're obstetricians than pediatricians? No, I, so, I said that as well. I, I added I mean, the fact okay. that obstetricians was, are also puzzle pieces. Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. So, so you but, don't think that that played. I just, looking at this list, I
2: wondered if that played any role in those, those occupations being more interchangeable or. Well, I, I think you're raising an interesting point, and I think we would have to discuss uh, more broadly what we mean by status and prestige. Yeah. If you say, if I said to you, I am not replaceable at all, it's just me, I am unique, I am great, okay? All those things then, are true,
0: then by the way. <laughs>
2: yeah. You're my puzzle piece. Um, then of course I have created uh, an aura of prestige and status. I think that it's a very interesting point. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, just interesting point. So pediatrician is actually the highest, uh, uh, the, the specialty with the highest uh, proportion of women, 72 percent, and then OB/GYN is actually
2: 70 percent, which is the second. I think that's a little. I I don't. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I have the numbers sitting Mm -hmm. here. It's a little different, but it's it is high. It is high.
0: Yeah, those numbers are actually from AMC. No, I'm I'm using
2: that as well. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Um, And then also in regards to surgery, um, for example, ortho is about twenty percent women, and it's actually one of the highest pays. And then interestingly, radiology is actually one of the highest pays as well. Mm. Um, But it also has a really low proportion of women. It has a very,
2: very low proportion of women, and that's a whole other set of Mm -hmm. subjects as to why that's the case. But within the surgical specialties, there's, uh, interestingly, there's one that has been increasing the number of women a lot, and that happens to be rectal and anal surgery. And the reason is that of the increase in Colonoscopies, which are so, any specialty in which there are procedures that can be scheduled yep. is going to be one in which yep. uh, you can have more temporal flexibility. Yeah, radiology, th- there's a real question in radiology because it started out. In the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s, is having a disproportionate number of women, and then it went down. And one of the reasons is that you don't have patients, yeah. And so women tend to want patients, yeah. Mm. I'm just wondering, uh, are there many women in bra- uh, as a brain surgeon or heart uh, surgeon like men? And the no, no, that, that, that's at the lower end too. It, it was, it's absolutely correct that, that surgery tends to be lower in part because of the time demands. Cardiology has some other problems too because uh, in cardiology you, you have to, there are procedures in which you have to use radiation. So that's another very interesting issue. I was listening to I was on a talk show once where someone called up, it was absolutely amazing. She works with her father, they're both cardiologists, and he took over for these procedures that could have affected her fetus when she was pregnant, Mm -hmm. and I thought, this is amazing because the grandfather of that (laughs) child is protecting the child and taking over for this female cardiologist. So. Yeah. Why do we have one more? Is there one, <coughs> one more question?
3: There are, not, there are not a lot of like co CEOs or executive directors. Like no, no, no. Members and members I'll
2: know. tell you, yeah. if my president said to me, <laughs> "I want you know a three-day week," I'd say, "You're not my president." Okay. So there are always going to be, always going to be occupations, and we have long lives, and and women are working longer. Okay, which is another project that I'm working on. And there are, there are moments when there really can be more gender, more an even playing field in the labor market because there's a far more even playing field at home. And of course I've glossed over the care of parents and, and others. Okay. Is there one more question?
1: But then um, I want to announce thank you very much for attending mm-hmm. today. And thank you, too, for giving mm-hmm. a terrific overview of the new initiative um, and reaching. your mm-hmm. own
0: <laughs> 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 whatever See, I it's start called. something she, decide what it's she decides. soon. Mm-hmm.
1: She decides. <laughs> OK. Um, so our next seminar is December 3rd, and Vera Miranova uh, we'll, who is a WAP fellow Will be from the University of Maryland, will be uh, speaking on her research on the role of economics in the practice of forced marriage of underage girls Indiana. Indiana. in Yemen. So the economics know. of that mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. Look, looking forward to seeing you there. Okay.